The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We have now entered into that long season that is commonly referred to in our tradition as the post-Pentecost season, the Sundays after Pentecost. Our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, though, call it ordinary time. And I've noticed that more and more that is a term that is getting more widespread use, even within our own tradition. Ordinary time actually has two parts. It's, it's the first part is between the Sunday following Epiphany up to Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, and then the second and larger part begins now after Pentecost and goes through until the first Sunday of Advent. I had a friend once who described ordinary time as that time in the liturgical year when nothing else is happening. You know, we're not celebrating the nativity, we're not looking at the cross, and not, I mean, not in the way that we do uh, during Holy Week and, and Easter. But that sells the whole thing short. I'd like to read you just a little piece of um, a posting on a blog called Simply Catholic about this ordinary time. At its root, the word ordinary has a rich meaning 
far beyond the usual understanding of humdrum, commonplace, or everyday. The word has its source in Sanskrit or Indo-European, which entered into the Latin as the verb orior, meaning to rise up, to be stirred up, to grow. The word for east in Latin, oriens, conveys the same rich meaning. It indicates the rising of the sun. Hence, ordinary time is the opportunity to allow the Lord to stir up our faith, to allow our spirits to rise, and to grow into our spiritual life. The color green brings this meaning to the fore, since it is a color that evokes life and growth. So the idea is that ordinary time is that time when we are just um, ever so slowly growing in our relationship to God and deepening our faith, bringing it to maturity, and looking forward in hope. This is what we hear when we hear Paul's words this morning, as he says, even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. It's interesting that in the Orthodox Study Bible, um, this verse has uh, a comment at the bottom of the page. And that comment talks about there are really three answers to that question that sometimes we find a little uh, threatening as to how do we answer this, are you saved? That it really has three answers. I was saved by Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, and I was saved by my accepting that grace in baptism, and faith. I am being saved day by day as I turn to the Lord and try to learn more about what kind of a life a Christian should be leading. And I will be saved when Christ comes again. Salvation encompasses all of time past, present, and future. And it's that present time that is being particularly emphasized here, where even as our outward body grows weak and decays, the inner being is being renewed every day. And as that process continues through an extended period of time, ever so gently, ever so quietly, and for the most part, ever so undramatically, although there are always those dramatic moments through life that come along. But for the most part, it, it is a, a slow and hopefully steady, gentle kind of process that is easily overlooked. But as we grow, our faith deepens, we become more Christ-like in how we live our lives, and we 
increase in that confidence of the promise of the final consummation and the wiping away of sin in our lives and the coming into the kingdom of God. For, Paul goes on to say, for the slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. So, I'd like to look from this perspective at the other two lessons that we heard this morning because they give us some how-tos, how to live that life so that our faith is deepened and matures and grows in confidence. And I'd like to start with the gospel lesson. My uh, New Testament professor, uh, I was fortunate enough to have Reginald Fuller, who was uh, a real superstar in the Anglican uh, church, uh, as far as uh, biblical scholarship, New Testament particularly, scholarship is concerned, points out that our story today is one of several in Mark. Mark is actually notable for the number of time he tells uh, stories in a kind of sandwich fashion. Probably the most famous of these is the healing of Jairus' daughter, the leader of the synagogue comes and he begs Jesus to come and heal his daughter who is quite ill. And if you remember as he goes along the way, a woman who has had a 12-year flow of blood that the doctors could not seem to stop um, uh, comes along and touches his robe and, and suddenly the whole uh, uh, story stops as Jesus says, who touched me? Um, and healing comes to her. And then the story continues about the healing of Jairus' daughter. Well, this is the same way. The story starts out talking about Jesus' family hearing about all of this bizarre stuff going on around Jesus. And they apparently... Um, think that he's gone a little crazy. Not having mental hospitals in those days, it was the family's responsibility to take charge of such people and to keep them safe and to, uh, and to help as much as they were able to be helped. So they start on their way. Meanwhile, <laughs> we hear the story about the encounter with the Pharisees and their accusation about He's casting out demons by Beelzebub and so on and so forth. And then we come back to the arrival of his family. It's easy to kind of miss the point to this thing. The point is that Jesus is talking about how important it is to recognize God at work in the world and God at work in our lives. And the sandwiching communicates the fact that we easily miss that in a couple of different ways. One is by misunderstanding or ignorance, like his family, and the other is by hardness of heart, 
that can actually cause um, uh, people like the Pharisees to maliciously and deliberately misinterpret what is going on. And that's why it concludes by the strange comment that he makes, because what Jesus is trying to communicate is that the activity of God at work in the world is something that is learned and discerned within the life of the believing community. And so he says at the end, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Looking around at the people around him that were recognizing God's hand in all of this and were benefiting from that grace of that knowledge. These are my brothers and sisters and my mother. So it should be for us. One of the most important elements of that ongoing life in Christ, the I am being saved aspect of our Christian walk, is the discernment of God's activity within the world and God's activity within our lives. And that can really only be done within the context of a community of faith, where we check out our perceptions with one another. I don't know whether any of you have experienced this, but from time to time, good, solid Christians run into somebody who comes up to them and says, God told me to tell you that, and then you fill in the blank. And, and sometimes people have enough courage to say in response to that, well, he didn't tell me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the fact of the matter is that human sin will cause us to misinterpret God's actions in the world and in our lives quite often. Our own motives, our own selfishness get in the way of a proper understanding. proper understanding comes as God's people work together so that out of that whole there is a collected wisdom and a collected discernment that gives us some assurance, not absolute assurance, but some assurance that indeed this is the way God is working. This is what God is calling us to do. This is the way that God is calling us to live. The Old Testament lesson in this context of I am being saved, this ongoing life in Christ, is really interesting because in contrast to this internal work that I've been talking about, um, we hear an invitation to look at the way in which our growth in Christ relates to our everyday world, our everyday life, the events that are just going on because we're alive and part of uh, a culture and a society. Israel goes to Samuel and says, we want a king like other nations. 
And Samuel knew that this was not good. And it's hinted that he takes it kind of as a personal affront because, in fact, he has been the leader of Israel for some time, um, called directly by God to that task and recognized by the people as one who, who was inspired by God. But they also see that he's getting older, and as the passage says, his sons do not follow uh, in his example. They do not follow in the way that he is so capable of leading. So they want a king like other nations. Well, God confirms Samuel's concern, and he says, Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways that the king who shall reign over them will have. And then, of course, we heard a list uh, that Samuel gave. The fact of the matter is that theocracies have never worked real well in human society and throughout human history. They either lead to tyranny on one part, because after all, if you're the king and you've got God on your side, then who should, you know, who do you have to even listen to to question your judgment? And of course, that's what Samuel was trying to warn the people about. But the other thing that can happen in a theocracy is things devolve into anarchy. And the people coming to Samuel are coming out of that history. Because if you look at the book of Judges, it's just before, here's a 200-year history of Israel where it says a couple of times in Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I like to point out, when I first ran into that passage, I was a teenager. That sounded pretty good. <laughs> but then I reached the maturity to realize that that's not good at all. Everybody just kind of going out there and doing their own thing, what was right in their own eyes, um, uh, leads to a, a real anarchy. And they're saying, you know, that we don't want to go back to that. What happens after you die? We want a leader who is going to carry things on. And when that person dies, we'll know who is to follow. So in the end, Israel um, resolved this issue by having two offices, the king and the prophet. And in the ideal sense, the model was really David and Nathan. Nathan was right there in the court all the time. He was almost like a, the king's advisor. Um, he was the king's advisor, particularly when God gave Nathan a word to speak to David. 
But as time went on, we learned that not all kings listen as attentively as David did. And many kings would gather false prophets that would tell them what they wanted to hear rather than the hard word that, you know, would sometimes come from God. But I raise all that because in our increasingly secular culture in which we live, I think that it gives us a hint as to what our role might be, how we might bring some positive influence into this whole situation. And that is to be the conscience of the king, to be the conscience of that culture. Now that's tricky because it needs to be done with humility. Sin is evident among God's people just as surely as it is among those who do not call upon the name of the Lord. And we particularly need to focus on the effect of living a life that is authentic in the sense that our behavior is consistent with our belief. Because that in itself provides a witness and a voice of conscience to a world that is increasingly turning away from God. But we also should have no illusions, and this is where that sanctification of I am being saved particularly comes in. Because um, the secular world is increasingly not going to want to hear what we have to say. They're going to increasingly not want what we have to offer. And at the very least, we will find ourselves ridiculed and at the worst, of course, persecuted. But if we understand that in that ongoing life in Christ, that once we have committed ourselves to Christ, the whole rest of our lives is used by God in order to mold us, shape us, deepen our relationship with him, and prepare us for that eternal weight of glory, then we can do what we are called to do as God's people without fear. We can do it even with confidence, knowing that no matter what we may have to face, in this world, God will use it to prepare us for that eternal weight of glory. So our lives in Christ are not just an internal, inward-focused kind of thing. Even the interactions in our daily lives become uh, 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 grist for the mill, as they say. It becomes part of that which God uses in order to sanctify us and to make us the kind of people that he wants us to be. So today is a real invitation, an invitation to understand that ordinary time is that time to be focused on I am being saved 
and to allow God to be at work in such a way that our faith is deepened, our lives become more uh, Christ-like, and our confidence in the hope of the resurrection becomes stronger and stronger until one day, with joy, we go to meet our Lord. Amen.